You know, this week I was preparing a message for Easter Sunday. So I opened up John 19 and 20, and I was reading it a few times, and I was making my own outline on the four headings. His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His witnesses. I was thinking that I would say you know, a few things under each heading. His death, burial, resurrection, and witnesses, and, and move on. But as I was meditating on the first section, His death, Something caught my eyes, and I just couldn't move beyond that. So I prayed to God, you know, this is Easter Sunday, I wanted to speak on His resurrection. But at the end of the day, I decided that I would just basically preach that, His death today, and move on from there in coming weeks. So please excuse me as I will speak on His death today. Uh, on His Resurrection Sunday. Right before this passage, Jesus was hanging on the cross and He said these in John's Gospel. Woman, talking to His mom, Woman, behold your son, that is Apostle John. Then He said to the disciple, John, Behold your mother. So even as He was dying on the cross, He was taking care of His mom. And then today's passage, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. I am thirsty, he said. On Good Friday, I've asked you to read all four gospel accounts on the death of Christ. I don't know how many of you uh, were able to do that this past Friday, but we did. And we found Matthew and Mark, right? The Gospels are basically the same. When you look at Luke's Gospel, Luke records the conversations between the robbers and Christ. He alone provides us with that detail. And John, Gospel of John, he alone adds few words that are not found in other Gospels. That's why you need all four Gospels. But one of the things that are unique to John's Gospel is that word that you have read today, which made me stop in my own preparation this week, is that I am thirsty. Maybe you have heard the seven last words of Christ. I've heard a couple of sermons on that, all seven, but I've never really studied it on my own and whatnot. But not until this week, that words of Christ, the word of Christ, I am thirsty, really never caught my attention. You know, you read it and he says, I am thirsty. And what's more important in that narrative is that it is finished. You probably have heard sermons on that. But I am thirsty. Really, I just couldn't pay much attention to it until this week. Once again, I want to attribute that to the work of the Holy Spirit. So I thought, okay, I am thirsty. And I thought that's an odd thing to say on the cross. 
So I looked it up. I read it in English a few times. And when things like this happen, then I go to, you know, the Greek text. And that word is ditzo. And immediately, when I noticed that word, I said to myself, well, then, that's a verb. You recognize that ending. And I thought, then, it shouldn't say, I am thirsty. Rather, it should say, I thirst. I was thinking, what's the difference? Well, it's the same thing. But this time, ESV and New King James, King James and YLT, they all translate this as, I thirst. And the rest will say, I am thirsty, including NAS. You know, if it's a verb, I want it in verb form. That's what I was thinking. But more importantly, when you want to say, I am thirsty, it really requires three Greek language, three words, three words. But this really is in one word. I is included in that verb. And that fits that description. Because Jesus is dying. And Jesus doesn't have strength to utter multiple words. And my guess is that. His first language being Aramaic. He will be speaking. What did he say? That's a a Hebrew Bible. Psalm 22 verse 1. But the ending is Aramaic. By Jesus' time, Hebrew language died out, like Latin. And it was more a mixture of Aramaic with some old Hebrew language. But all in all, when you check that, it, it slows you down, right? Original language, all that really does is to clarify a few things and it slows you down. As I was looking up and thinking about all these things, one thing is clear. The overwhelming sensation at this point, while he was dying on the cross, under the scorching sun of nearest sun, the Son of God and the Son of Man was thirsty. None of us could possibly imagine the physical pain that comes with the crucifixion. No matter how you try. That's why so many churches show you on that Resurrection Sunday, like Good Friday, they show you the movies. But I don't think any of us could possibly imagine all that was happening in him. And did you notice that I looked up all these four Gospels? If you are dying on the cross, what would you say? You know, we have children here, so I'm not going to go into very detail. But as you know, you have to pull up to breathe. You let go, all kinds of pain. So either way, you are dying. Just gasp, you pull up, entire body weight, and you let go. You see, you could imagine, either way, it is is death. And if I were on the cross, I'd probably scream. Something like, my hand, my wrist, I'm dying, whatever that I would scream. But this is the only description that we have. What he uttered, I thirst. And I was thinking, probably I could relate to that. No matter what kind of, kinds of pain that he was enduring, the pain of thirst probably was the overwhelming sensation, even topping all the pains that he was enduring. And I, I thought, yeah, I, I could imagine that. I could, I could sense that, how... 
being thirsty for something could be so extremely urgent sensation that would even overpower all the pains now becoming numb uh, toward the ends of his uh, life. So that's where I was. And I also thought, I've never thought about this, but he's on Kolkata, on the hill. And just so that I, I could say something, I looked it up. What is weather like in Jerusalem this week? Google it. I'm sure for 2,000 years things have changed, but even this week Jerusalem will range anywhere between 58 degrees to 85 degrees this week. As you know, Passover coincides with really March and April, and it is relatively cold in our season here in New York, but there it is still 85 degrees with some kind of 80% humidity. So you see, he's up there dying, bleeding, pain, thirsty, and there is sun. And what happens? You are hanging on the cross without shade for, I don't know, six hours or so. You go blind. Blisters probably will form on your face. Probably your skin will be red, hot. And you could imagine that he will say, I thirst, I am thirsty. As you know, most of the things that Christ is going through on the cross is prophesied in Psalm 22. And listen to this. Psalm 22, 15 says this, predicting what Christ will go through. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. He is experiencing that. So I was there and thinking about these things and the pain that he was enduring. Thirst. I've never really thought about that. But a passage came to my mind. And then I couldn't stop. And this is, became so long. And I just decided that I would just speak on the death of Christ today. Not even it is finished. We just don't have time to get there. But I would say a few things. I remember in, that, in, in the Bible. Someone who was very, very thirsty like Christ. That passage came to my mind this week. Do you remember? whom you could compare this extreme pain of Christ being thirsty to someone else in the Bible. Well, that someone or that passage came to my mind was Luke 16. In Luke 16, there is the story about Lazarus and the rich man. They both die and this is what happens. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abram's bosom, something like heaven. And the rich man also died and was buried. And now the rich man is in hell. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment. And so Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. You know, when that passage overlapped, it kind of gave me the sense that what Christ is enduring is obviously physical pain. He's literally, physically 
being dried up, and he says, I'm thirsty, I thirst. But I thought to myself, he is also then tasting maybe the hellfire on our behalf. Because what is the dominant word or theme describing hell? Let me read you. In the New Testament, these are the languages that describe hell. Eternal fire, a place where the worm does not die and the torment and flame. Eternal destruction, a place of torment with fire and sulfur, where the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. A lake of fire and sulfur, tormented day and night forever and ever. Right. Dominant theme is fire. Whether it is describing their physical pain, all we know is that this rich man is conscious of his own agony. And when I heard that Jesus was, all that he said about his pain, that as he was enduring the cross was, I am thirsty. He doesn't say anything else. My wrist, I'm bleeding. He doesn't say anything else, but I am thirsty. I thirst. It reminded me of that passage, and I thought, it really is that. Uh, He is tasting some kind of hellfire on our behalf. And that led me to another passage or the imagery that came to my mind. The second imagery was what? Christ's thoughts remind me of the wilderness. As I was, we were thinking about the theme of Exodus for past few weeks and months. As you know, their thirst was the major cause of their rebellion. I don't have to recount everything, but after Exodus chapter 15, they arrived at the wilderness of Sur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So what do they do? The people grumbled at Moses. What shall we drink? Chapter 16, as I've noted, they go into another wilderness, deeper and deeper into wilderness, and now they are in the wilderness of sin. And they, what do they do? Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. This time, we are hungry. Did you bring us here into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger? They said. In chapter 17, now they go into Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. And what do they do? This time, the word is they quarreled with Moses. Not grumbling. Quarreled with Moses. What does that mean? He says to God, they are about to stone me. They are really kahal, the congregation of Yahweh, the church, is becoming a mob. Lawless mob. Just because why? There's no water to drink. And by this time, they should have known. When there's no water, God provides. But they never learn. So they complain and they grumble. They now quarrel with against Moses, about to stone him. Literally kill him and go back to where? Egypt. So, the thirst for them was the major cause of their rebellion. Thirst brought out what was in them. What was in them? Basically, lack of faith. Disobedience is but the fruit of lacking faith. That reminds me also of another verse in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 10, 4, says about Christ in this way. They, the Israelites in the wilderness, they all drank the same spiritual drink. 
For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Whichever way you want to uh, understand the verse, one thing is clear. Christ was the source of life even for the people in the wilderness. And what is he doing? He's on the cross. He's dying of thirst. And I thought the very source of the rock where the water would pour, pour out is now being dried up, I thought. But the difference is that Christ, the second and final Adam, true Son of God, true Israel, will obey God despite of his thirst. That's the difference. Simply when the basic need was not met, they wanted to kill Moses and go back to Egypt. After all that they have seen and experienced. So, his being thirst on the cross glorifies Christ's obedience. Thirsty Christ, obedient Christ. Thirsty Israelites, rebellious children of God. That also led me to another portion. And I was thinking, but do you remember in the Garden of Eden was what? Four rivers. A lot of water in the Garden. Genesis 2. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the Garden. And from there it divided and came, became four rivers. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden too. Cultivate it and keep it. The language is agricultural language. And the river, the water was there not simply to see and say how nice. But that river, literal four rivers are abounding in water. Watering everything, becoming the source of life in that sense. And then God puts him into the garden to cultivate it with water with land, with trees. So I was thinking Christ hanging on the cross, he's thirsty. Rich man, all he wanted in hell was drop of water in his tongue. Israelites, thirsty, disobedience. And I was thinking, okay, garden, that, you know, the presence of God, dwelling with God in the beginning of creation when all things were good. Ample, ample water. Way back to the garden is to go through arid Christ. Was dying of thirst, I thought. We must travel on Christ who is like the cracked desert floor, baked clay. And he will say to you, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. And another thing, it starts from the river and as you know, Revelations at the end, chapter 22, talks about another river. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This time this river flows out of God's throne. And in the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit. Symbolism, probably. But the presence of God is symbolized by ample water. From the beginning of human history in the garden, 
Till the, the last chapter of the Bible, human history, when the consummation happens, there still is ample water. And that、uh, symbolizes God's presence and life from God. But then, what is he going through is the question. The very source of life, and he says, I thirst. And all of that really. Is to emphasize that he died. 19, chapter 19, verse 30, the second half says this. And after he said that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Probably he wanted to portray him as still being in charge. And he doesn't say Jesus simply was killed or murdered, was, was he a victim. But he, in his sovereignty, he voluntarily lays down his life. Right? So the fact is here that he died. Really, truly, physically, literally, he died, is the point. And as he was dying, as he yielded up his spirit, gave up his spirit, he was not doing that alone. As you know, Hebrews 9 14 says, Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, that is, Holy Spirit helped him even at the time of his death. That's right. So, really, at this point, what the Gospels are really emphasizing is that he died. I think that is a very, very important point. Oftentimes, we think of resurrection as being more important. We portray Christ on the cross and he dies, and then immediately we kind of think about resurrection. Oh, how painful he was, how, how hard must it be for him to endure all that cross, and we immediately move on to resurrection because we believe resurrection is very important in conquering death. But when you read the text, Bible emphasizes his death. It is very important in God's plan. That this sinless God man should really, truly, physically die. That is very important in God's redemptive history. Because God said, You will surely die in the garden, also the Son of Man, the Son of God, also had to die. And his death alone satisfies the divine justice. And atones for all of the sin caused death since Genesis 3. The importance of his death, resurrection is obviously important, but death is also important because that death satisfied God's wrath, vengeance, justice. And apart from his death, resurrection really will not satisfy. We cannot separate the two. But listen to this. In Matthew's gospel, when he dies, this is what he says Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The following verse is this Behold, what? The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Normally we just read it. But that veil being torn, being torn open, basically giving us the access to the Holy of Holies, happened not after resurrection, after death. 
Initially, it opened the doors for us. What did? Not resurrection, but death. Why? Because his death is satisfying God's wrath fully, completely, once and for all. See how important death of Christ is. His death is the end of all deaths. Ever since Genesis 3, since the fall, death came into human history. Think about all the millions and billions of people who have lived until this point, Christ's point. All the death, whatever, murder, war, poverty, hunger, in whatever cause of death was, the fact is people have been dying. And here is what we see is Christ's death, which in effect for the believers of Christ, His death puts all death to complete stop. So either as you believe in Christ, His death will be the last death, or it will compound your guilt, because now your guilt is that rejecting Christ's perfect sacrifice, His sacrificial death, and you reject that from God's perspective, you reject my son's blood, and it compounds, it heightens one person's guilt before you. So it's, it's the Christ that really is good news or bad news. It's good news in that when we believe, it puts stop to all death once and for all. Or if you reject his death, then your guilt will be multiplied uh, from God's perspective. One last thing is this. If you have noticed, in the uh, same chapter, verse 35, he says his commentary. He puts his commentary. And he who has seen has testified about himself. That's talking about himself. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. And I thought as I was reading this, why put that here, not after resurrection? Which one is more hard to believe? Resurrection. And if you want to say anything like this, wouldn't you say this after the resurrection and say, that's the truth. That's the true account. Trust me, I am reporting the true account. But he puts it right after the death of Christ. So he gave me that perspective. Death of Christ is really, really important for Christians to understand. He wanted to emphasize that he really died. Why? It's very important that he really dies so that, once again, it will satisfy God's justice. And he says, why? So that you also may believe. That's right. It comes down to this. All the benefits of Christ's death and his resurrection are appropriated by faith alone. whole point of reporting this true account to the people as he was writing down is so that you may believe. And he, say, he will say that once more in chapter 22, verse 30 and 31, he says, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Imagine you have never heard about Jesus, Christ, church, or anything like that. Somebody gives you a book 
It says, "Here is the book that tells you about life, everlasting life, heaven, and God. The Bible. If you were open it up, what would you expect? Here's a religious text, and many religions have their own books. And you receive copy of the Bible, and and you start reading it for the first time. I don't know, trying to find God, trying to find better life, whatever it is. What will you find in this book?" In the Bible, what you will find is the obsession of that book on the topic of death. It really is about death. You open it up; it's about creation, and immediately after that, death comes in. The rest of the history is about death, and finally, God sends His Son to deal with this problem of death, and that's what Christianity is all. About what have we seen? What what did you see from this text today? What I have seen is this. In conclusion, on the cross, thirsty Christ, who is the seed of woman, is crushing the head of the serpent once and for all. Don't simply look at thirsty Christ, dying Christ, painful Christ, but he is. Crushing the head of the serpent at this time, serpents, his power, his dominion, his kingdom, his seeds, his lies, and his most powerful weapon, if you would, the death itself, and he is crushing the death into pieces by the Lamb of God. That's what God is doing: his decisive victory over death. So, in John Owen's famous title. What you see today is death of death in the death of Christ. To be a human is to be subjected to the power of death. Our confession's language is this: made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. But Christ alone is the way. He shows the way back to life, and he says. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And we should say, Amen. We believe that Christ dealt with problem of death, and I believe in Him, and will give you everlasting life. Let's pray.